TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Pathway to a Negotiated Peace in Ukraine with Professor Jeffrey Sachs. The New York-based organization Brooklyn for Peace invited Professor Jeffrey Sachs to help devise a strategy to prevent nuclear war by negotiating a peace agreement. In their introduction to this talk on October 6, 2022, they praised him as a world-renowned economics professor and best-selling author. Sachs serves as the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. There he holds the rank of university professor. Jeffrey Sachs is very familiar with Russia and the former Soviet Union, Soviet President Gorbachev, and then Russian President Yeltsin invited him to advise them on the transition from central planning to market economy. He also observed directly the history and expansion of NATO. Here's Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Let me uh, say at the start that we're on an extraordinarily dangerous path of escalation between Russia and the United States. And the war in Ukraine is largely, in my opinion, a proxy war. It's Ukrainians fighting uh, and dying. It's uh, American weapon systems, intelligence, uh, so-called officials, strategists, tactical finance that is uh, backing this war. So this is to all effects and purposes, a war between uh, the US and Russia, though fought in a proxy way so far. Our goal, we're told from the US side, is to defeat Russia and force it to leave Ukraine after uh, what is described as an unprovoked invasion on February 24th. I think there were lots of provocations, so the situation's more complicated, but let me just start with the, the desired outcome. I don't understand it. I don't understand how it conceivably be achieved. We think that weapon systems and sanctions and fighting will wear down Putin or get him overthrown and uh, something will change and Russia will go home because they realize that this is uh, not worth it for them. And maybe the US model, and by US, I don't mean us, the American people, we have no part in any of this. The model of those who are prosecuting uh, the US side of this is that it's like Afghanistan or Vietnam was for the United States that after it gets sufficiently bloody and useless, you just go home. I think there's a huge difference, which is that from Putin's perspective, but I think it's more general than that. It's not just one person. From the perspective of the Russian political actors and elites, the situation in Ukraine is not like America in Vietnam or America in Afghanistan, it's exactly in the neighborhood. And so it's viewed in Russia, I'm not sure, but I think in much, much 
uh, starker terms that we will not lose this war because this is a war about Russian security. That's the Russian view. Okay, you could say they're crazy, not crazy, but I think that's the Russian view. And if that's the Russian view, and our view is we're going to defeat Russia, and Russia's view is we're not going to be defeated, I, I don't understand what anybody really has in mind other than continued escalation. And it is shocking, but not surprising that every day now we have stories, will he or won't he use nuclear weapons? as if this is just another casual story, as opposed to the existential threat to our survival, which it is. So I believe we don't have a plan. I don't think we have a strategy. We want to defeat Russia. And yet Russia doesn't want to be defeated. And even if we could, which I have my doubts about, defeat Russia on conventional weapons basis, Russia has 1,600 active nuclear warheads and 6,000 uh, warheads in total. So I don't understand what our idea is. And again, when I speak of our, it's not mine, <laughs> it's not yours, I think. It's our government's. And I don't even know who's really responsible for this, but it's a very narrow group and it has almost nothing to do with the American people and no one's been asked about it and no one's been informed about it. And no one's been told about it. And yet here we are near the brink of nuclear war and we are near the brink of nuclear war. That's true. So to my mind, we are in a wildly wrongheaded approach. Oh, how did we get here? Again, this is much contested. There are two very different narratives. One narrative is Putin is, you know, has delusions of grandeur and thinks he's Peter the Great and he's going to recreate the Russian Empire. That's the American story we're told all the time. I have a very different view, which is that we got here because the United States just can't keep its goddamn nose out of anyone's backyard. And we kept pushing NATO enlargement. And I was there 32 years ago as advisor to Gorbachev and then advisor to Yeltsin and advisor to Kuchma, first president of independent Ukraine. And I was an advisor to Yatsinyuk just after the 2014 event. So I've watched this pretty close up for 32 years. And I think the US is the provocation. This does not play well in the US media. In fact, it doesn't play at all. I can't get an op-ed published in the US media. They're not interested. They don't want to have any debate at all. So I think it is absolutely true, by the way, that the US and Germany told Gorbachev in 1990. Gorbachev offered, by the way, to disband the Warsaw Pact. That came from Gorbachev. We said, if you disband the Warsaw Pact, we will not use the occasion to move NATO to the east. And that became a condition, actually, for German reunification. And it was absolutely explicit. Now, since our government lies about everything, the narrative is, oh, we never promised, which is not true. And there's a whole 
vast documentary record of the U.S. promising no enlargement. Well, of course, as soon as the Soviet Union went away, we thought it was a juicy opportunity to enlarge NATO and started with Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, 1999, and then George W. Bush Jr. added seven more countries, three in the Baltic, so three right on Russia's border, Bulgaria and Romania, which is um, Russia's Black Sea region, and Slovakia and Slovenia. And we continue NATO expansion. And in 2008, Bush said, now we'll go to Ukraine and to Georgia. And to my mind, this was just absolutely the most provocative thing we could do. Because now we're pushing NATO right up against Russia's core security concerns. And the Europeans, many European leaders told me in 2008 how dangerous this was and how much they were against it. But the US calls the shots. So. Ladies and gentlemen, to my mind, we've been stirring the pot the whole time. And there are many complications to this story. So you could, I could talk for hours about the details. But in 2014, the pro-Russian president was overthrown. The US narrative is it was a mass public uh, upheaval against a corrupt president. And I was there on the ground soon afterwards, and I know that the US played a direct role in the overthrow. And the Russians call it a coup. So we have com competing narratives, but the Russians say, Russians say, look, you overthrew the president friendly to our country. We don't want you anywhere close to our borders. At the end of 2021, Putin put forward security demands to the White House. At the core of them was don't expand NATO. I called the White House at the end of 2021 to beg them, negotiate. We shouldn't be expanding NATO anyway, negotiate. And I was told, no, we have an open door policy, which means that anyone that wants to join NATO can join NATO. And I said, that's crazy. This isn't a right, this is a threat to another country. This isn't about rights, this is about the effects on the neighbors. And I said, do you believe that Mexico has the right to have a military alliance with China? I don't think so, but that's what you say about Ukraine, that they have the right to have a military alliance with the United States. I said, in any event, it's, they can ask, but it's not prudent for us to do it. Well, the White House refused any negotiations. And then there are competing stories, and I won't go into all the details, but Putin invaded on February 24th, and uh, we've been escalating ever since. And the last week has been filled with news stories, these casual stories of will he or won't he use nuclear weapons as if, you know, we're trying to predict uh, the, the uh, outcome of the Super Bowl. It's bizarre to me. I've just never seen anything so reckless. And I have no confidence in the US government, no confidence uh, in what we're doing to uh, head this off because they're dead set on doing whatever it takes. That's what they say all the time, whatever it takes to win this, for Ukraine to win this war. 
And since I don't think Russia is going to lose this war short of nuclear war, to my mind, we're on a recipe of continued escalation. And I'll stop with the reading. I want to read you one uh, set of words from my favorite speech of modern times by an American president, which is President John F. Kennedy's speech on June 10, 1963. And just to give a background about this, I wrote a book about this speech because I love it so much. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy and Khrushchev knew the world's insane. Uh, we can't go on this way. We're going to blow everything up. We need to find a way to peace. And Kennedy gave this speech on June 10, 1963, to convince Americans that it was possible to make peace with the Soviet Union, which was not a conventional view. How can you make peace with the commies? And Kennedy said, you know, we have to check our own attitudes. They're human beings. They have the same desires as we do, and uh, they want to live in peace also. And so if the agreement is mutually satisfactory, it can be mutually observed. Very, very wise words by President Kennedy. And Kennedy said something that I really, really want to emphasize. Uh, he, he said, and it's the most important statement for this moment, he said, above all, while defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. So what Kennedy is saying is you never with a nuclear adversary, make them choose between a humiliating defeat and a nuclear war. But that's exactly what we're proposing to do right now with Putin. Not only that, we are every day Zelensky tries to humiliate Putin, not tries to solve a problem, but to humiliate Putin. You know, maybe, of course, he's rallying his supporters, but we get closer and closer to the precipice. I can't stand listening to Zelensky, I'm telling you, because maybe I can understand, although I don't really understand. If I were next door to Russia, I'd have a different language because I wouldn't want to be nuked either. But what he's doing in terms of provocation is extremely dangerous and we're playing the game because we're saying whatever they do that's all right they have to win i believe that they're the ones shelling the nuclear power plant i'm absolutely almost sure that it's ukraine shelling the power plant our papers say we don't know who's doing it but since russia controls the plant and ukraine wants to win it back i think ukraine is shelling the nuclear power plant I think, by the way, just to add to uh, the discussion that we are the ones that blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. I'm pretty sure that was a U.S. action. When I said it on television a couple of days ago, they cut me off. They took me off the air immediately because uh, you're not allowed to say this on U.S. television. But it's pretty much conventional wisdom in other parts of the world, even by reporters that don't write it in their paper. If you talk to them privately, they say, of course, it's the U.S. Who else would do it? Who else could do it? Who else had an incentive to do it? So let me stop there.
It's so dangerous. We have no debate in this country, uh, in Congress or any place else. They're not asking us to be part of this discussion, even though it's our lives on the line and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. New York City is extraordinarily vulnerable, I don't have to mention. And our congressmen aren't saying boo. So one thing I'd love for us to do is reach the New York delegation to just say, this is reckless, stop it. We're in the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis this month. We don't want to replay it. And we would never have survived it had it not been for Kennedy in that position, because it, if it had been any of his advisors, the world would have been destroyed. But he was smart enough not to destroy the world. So let me stop there and uh, turn it over and uh, open for discussion. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Professor Sachs. Yeah, we have a lot of, of really thoughtful and important questions. Um, I think there are a lot of folks who are skeptical or curious as to how realistic it would be for the U.S. to negotiate with Putin, um, depending on, you know, on what. So what- let, let me just say one, one thing about that. We don't know whether negotiations would work or not. It's true. I personally believe they would because I know a lot of the Russian leaders over a long period. And I believe that there is absolutely a way to negotiate and that the central question is NATO enlargement. And that's the question the US has never accepted even discussing. But let me say the following. Suppose we negotiated something and that it was satisfactory, but then Russia violated it, which is possible. Then we would be in no worse situation than we are right now, but we would at least have the whole world know that we went the extra mile to try to find peace and the other side violated it. And that to my mind is the right approach. The right approach is to try for peace. And if it fails, you end up in war. But if you say there's no one to negotiate with, then you're surely in war. So I wanna try the exit ramp, not guaranteeing, because nothing in life is a guarantee, not guaranteeing it would work, but believing that it would. I have lots of reasons to believe that it would. Russia is not a sole actor by itself. China is a very important actor in this. China actually would like a peace agreement. China would like to insist on a peace agreement. India would like a peace agreement. They don't want a peace agreement in which NATO enlarges because the US is targeting China too but they want a peace agreement that is satisfactory. And so there are many ways to enforce a peace agreement beyond just a piece of paper. There are many interests at stake. And by the way, the Russians honor agreements at times. We do too sometimes. We break them a lot also. The Ukrainians broke agreements. They absolutely would not implement the Minsk agreements. So the Russians say, look, how can we negotiate? You lie to us, you cheat. France and Germany were supposed to be the guarantors of the Minsk II agreement. When the Ukrainians say, eh, we don't like this agreement, then 
France and uh, Germany remain silent because they're on the Western side. So there is a, a lot of deceit, but it's not just Putin. And our division of the world into the pure good and the pure evil is phony. And it's phony here as well. So my view is, and I can tell you, you know, all over the world, people basically agree with what I'm saying, which is, yeah, this is a war about NATO enlargement. And if it isn't, we should prove that. We should say, okay, we won't enlarge NATO. Now let's see if you stop the war. If you don't, then it exposes. This isn't about NATO enlargement. This is about your empire building. Then you get the whole world on side. But right now the whole world isn't on side. I'm not on side, but a lot of the rest of the world's not on side because they believe this is a proxy war between the US and Russia. There are three issues that were mentioned every time. And remember something really interesting, another one of these mysteries. In mid-March, there was a, uh, a flurry of statements by Russia, Ukraine, and Turkey, which was mediator, that the two sides had come close to an agreement and that they actually exchanged papers. And I spoke with very senior Russian, a very, very senior Russian official about this who described this to me. And uh, actually, the Ukrainians put forward the idea of neutrality. This immediately went to Putin. Putin said, let's draft a, a, a peace agreement around this. The Russians did. They put it back to Zelensky. And then Zelensky said, no, I've, uh, that's, that's not what I meant. And the strong rumors, which I believe, are that the United States and UK said to Zelensky, hell no, you want us to back you? We're not backing neutrality. And that this was a complete change and it was the end of the negotiations. So I think the US has been completely uninterested in the negotiations. That week, Biden flew to a NATO meeting in Brussels and declared this is gonna be a long war. And then he went from Brussels to Warsaw and said, that man can't stay in power. And then a few days later, Lloyd Austin said, uh, our goal is to weaken Russia. So I think it's US policy not to have a negotiated solution. I think there was close to a negotiated outcome beforehand. And I watch lots of Russian blogs and they call for negotiations, which is if, if it were Russia's desire not to negotiate, you wouldn't have the Russian bloggers calling for negotiations. I think Russia's idea was we can scare Ukraine into neutrality, if I could put it that way. That was the original idea of, of the invasion. And I think it was a desperate move, but I think the motivating factor of the move was that the US was heavily arming Ukraine and threatening Russian security. And Russia could not get US attention. This is the basic point. We treat Russia like if you'll excuse me which is they put forward negotiating demands and we say, no, no interest. Why should we talk to you? You're a fourth rate power. You're delusional. We're the superpower. And that I think is the basic point. Then we say there's no one to negotiate with after we say we're not negotiating. 
You don't know if there's someone to negotiate with till you negotiate with them. And frankly, we didn't even try. And if we tried and failed, we'd have the whole world on our side immediately. Yeah, thank you. And so uh, I guess a follow-up to that is in advocating for our members of Congress to take steps toward a diplomatic solution, do you think peace activists should demand that the US get out of NATO? I, I think that the peace community should call for negotiations now uh, that uh, can defuse this crisis before nuclear war. I think that that is the absolute most important thing to do. People are scared and should be scared. And by the way, every day when I read someone say, we're not going to be intimidated by this, I say, what the hell do you know? <laughs> we're all going to be incinerated if you get this wrong. Uh, and I know, because I've studied it for 50 years, how close we have come to nuclear war. And given that we are on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, somebody ought to think a little bit more clearly about this. Maybe our key people in office, are some of them are too young to remember this, or they haven't studied it, they don't understand it, they don't know how dangerous this is. But uh, I think that the focus should be stop this escalation. We are on the precipice. This is crazy. And there is a way to negotiate an outcome. And the two sides were negotiating in March. Send them back to the negotiating table, but with U.S. support for negotiations. That, to my mind, is the key. If you could see a way to getting some of our uh, delegation on online, or you'd like me to help with that, uh, but I'd ask you to take the lead, but uh, use my name. I think uh, this would be a great next step. Really necessary and a core democratic step because our congressmen and women owe it to us to talk with us about this. This is dire and we need to have a conversation. So you could count on me to join in on that. That's great. Thank you so much. I, I feel pretty sure we'll take you up on that. Wonderful. Um, thank you for joining us. It's just a very confused, very difficult, but extraordinarily dangerous situation. So I thank you. The voice of peace is the most important message right now, period. And uh, we absolutely need to pull back from the precipice that we're deliberately climbing towards right now. So thank you very much and hope that we're together soon. Thank you so much, Professor Bye-bye. The executive director of the New York-based organization Brooklyn for Peace saying goodbye to Professor Jeffrey Sachs. He serves as the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, where he holds the rank of university professor. Brooklyn for Peace has begun a campaign to ask the New York State Congressional Delegation to sign on to a letter drafted by Representative Pramila Jayapal from Washington State. The letter is addressed to President Biden, calling on him to take crucial steps to help bring an end to this war. Rather than simply sending more weapons, these steps include, quote, making vigorous diplomatic efforts in support of a negotiated settlement and ceasefire, engaging in direct talks with Russia, 
exploring prospects for a new European security arrangement acceptable to all parties that will allow for a sovereign and independent Ukraine. End quote from the sign-on letter to President Biden, drafted by Representative Pramila Jeopol. This is from the website of brooklynpeace.org. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelerden. Thank you for listening.